the winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 59th episode in the series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk with Charlotte Mellis of Larachthor, near Trishnish. I hope this finds you well and happy, whatever you may be. Charlotte's family have had a home on Mull since the 1950s. Her father was in the Navy when she was wee, so she grew up between Mull, Malta and Greece. Charlotte is a noted potter who owns the Tin Shed Gallery, where you can see both her work and exhibitions by herself and others throughout the course of the year. She hails from a family of renowned artists, including her aunties Margaret Mellis and Anne Stokes. Our conversation goes straight in at the deep end with discussions about the nature of privilege and trying to find a niche in life. We then talk about her family, how she developed her skills as a potter, her rock and roll past, and how she met Athol, to whom she's been married for 30 years. And then we talk about why she loves life here on Mull. You may notice that the sound changes about five minutes into our chat. That's because of a technical issue caused by me being a fud. I'll be back at the end with more. And now it is with great pleasure that I pass you over to Charlotte Mellis. Who are you? If I knew the answer to that, is that what everybody says? And tune in next week for... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm the product of my background, I suppose, and my own life experience. Then a whole load of molecules and genes, and I'm just a melting pot. (laughs) And if if one was to look you up in the phone book, what would they call you? I think Charlotte Mellis. What has Mull meant to you? Oh, well, it really means a lot to me. I've got an older brother and sister, and they were never bitten by Mull like I was. When I was about six, I went to the local school in Salem. My parents came to Mull in the 50s, 1951, and... My dad was in the Navy, but they didn't have very much money and they wanted to establish themselves somewhere in between so that they had a home in between his postings. And they came to Mull. My father used to sail as a boy around Mull. And um, he brought mum here in the 50s. And they saw this cottage in Salon and found out it was owned by the Scots. Um, who was the laird, really, of everything around there, Glenara's right. estate. Right. And it stretched to vill- the village and lots of property in the village. And um, so Dad asked him if, you know, could he buy it? So for 200 quid, he got our little cottage in Sarlan. And that was my home. It was called High Water because the water came up to the wall in Goodness the high me. tide. And that that was home for forever still is I still have it with a permanent uh, tenant in it and that was fine because it meant we had somewhere to go in between my dad's postings so I was sort of brought up there really on and off wow. and I went to Sarn school when I was six not for very long because then I went off um, 
to school in Malta and all this sort of thing. But I loved it. I always loved it. And then when I grew up, I used to come back and see my parents. I loved my parents very much, but I yeah. loved Mull, which was why I returned all the time, because I just really loved being in Mull. So I, it's meant a lot. And then when I completely decided to come and live here. Yeah. So I've, I've had periods in my life where I've lived on Mull and then gone away again. I can't, I mean, twice I spent a long period of time here in the past. Anyway, finally, in 1991, I, I moved back to Glengorm. So that's oh. where I started my pottery at Glengorm. Right, okay. And then, but before that, I'd been, I'd been here at Glengorm as well. <laughs> and I met somebody, a woman at Glengorm, who was also, had just booked herself on one of these Exodus bus trips. I went to South America at some point from Mull, but I also went to overland to Australia from Mull. <laughs> That's amazing. So, how did the route to Australia go? So, would you go down, down through, through North Africa and across? No, the no, no. We or? went through Europe and Afghanistan, <gasps> Iran, wow. India, that way. And that was must have been in the eighties. So was that just as the Russians? I can't quite remember. I completely lost the plot here. Was that as the Russians had gone into Afghanistan? No, we were perfect. No, I think it was just before any of those troubles. Oh my God. So you were at the peak of Afghanistan? Yes. I mean, luckily, we got through it and everything was absolutely fine. I don't think there was any trouble at all in Afghanistan when we went through it. After that, I remember thinking, God, we'd never have gone. I really can't remember what dates these are. And whether that was my first trip. No, that was my second trip. Okay, right. I've got it now in my head. <laughs> the South American one was I was really quite young. I was 22. And um, so that was way before that. Wow. So this was the latest trip going off to... I was going off to Australia to live in Australia. But we went oh, overland yeah. and I went with this woman who, who I met at Glengorm. That's right. And so who was this woman? Who who was she? I can't even I can't remember her name now. I used to really irritate her because she was a sort of Buddhist, <laughs> and I I really wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so she couldn't bear me in the morning because I'd talk. And she you wanted know, to be mindful. She wanted and observe to be the all world. mindful and everything. <laughs> and she found me very irritating, and I don't blame her really. But we we managed it. Well, we got on right. She wanted to go back to Thailand because she'd lived in Thailand, and. It was just convenient that we went together. And it was more interesting just being the two of us doing it on our own. It was just the hippie trail. Everybody did it. Everybody went overland to, you know, cross there. So it was not a difficult thing to do. What was your favourite part of that journey? Oh, I loved India. Really? But I loved Afghanistan too. I really yeah. thought the people were so lovely and it was so beautiful. There were lots of very beautiful parts of it. We sort of went through the middle. Okay. Unless we... On the passes, I suppose we went by bus, but there were certain mountainous passes that we went through. It was quite hairy at times. Oh, yeah, I imagine. But I loved India. And then I started to go a bit bonkers because then she sort of left me at some point to go back to, I don't know, wherever she was. And so I did quite a lot of travelling on my own at that point. And I went up to to Kathmandu and had a, a terrible experience where I was on my own. I'd been travelling a bit on my own and it was it was a bit sort of tricky because I was wondering who the hell I was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I 
and I was going through this, well, who am I? I'm just sort of some middle-class girl wandering around the world with a pack on my back. I don't have a profession. I wasn't a student. I was just this girl kind of messing about. And I, I felt this quite deeply. So anyway, one evening I was standing around. There was a sort of festa in Kathmandu. Mm. And this Nepalese bloke came up to me and he said, oh, do you want to have a smoke? Mm-hmm. And I said, um, oh, yes, all right. <laughs> so anyway, we struck up a conversation. He seemed really, really nice. And you shouldn't be doing this as a young woman. You shouldn't just go off with a bloke that comes up to you in the, <laughs> in the, street. the street. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he said, come meet my family. And I thought, oh, that would be all right. I'll meet his family. So we went back to his family's house and they were having some sort of festa themselves. And there was all this food on the table Wow. On the floor, because they ate on the floor. They yeah. sat on the floor and they ate on the floor and they ate with their fingers. Yeah. And I was quite stoned. Mm-hmm. And I felt so self-conscious. I felt this unbelievable feeling that I had everything and yet I was nothing. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, this all sounds... No, the classic bit. duality thing, yeah. Um, and they had nothing and yet they had everything. Yep. You know, it was like the opposite. And they thought I was wonderful because I came from the West and they wanted to go to the West and... I didn't have anything to say or I I was just so disgusted with the fact that I was just this absolute waste of space and here there were these wonderful people and they were all eating with their fingers beautifully Mm. and I tried to eat because I was a bit stoned as well with my fingers, you know, and I made this filthy mess all around me and I was just like this gross and it got worse and worse. I got gross, more and more gross and more and more big and more and more white and more and more... Mm middle class and more and more everything it was just awful yeah Uh, anyway in the end (laughs) in the end the very kind man who brought me there took me back to where i was staying and i think i slept it off Mm -hmm. but that was the beginning of i sort of subsequently spent a long time having sort of breakdown for for quite a long time yeah um because i just couldn't get who i was or what the hell i was doing in this world of ours (laughs) but I managed to gather myself together enough to get from Kathmandu uh, back uh, to India and then on I went on to Thailand and that where I met up with her again Mm -hmm. and stayed there for a bit and then I went back to Australia and then that was another whole story where I lived in Australia. How long were you in Australia for? I was there for the year the first time because I only had this sort of tourist visa Mm. and I had to keep renewing it every three months and then after a year and a bit, they said, you know, Ta-ta. out. <laughs> and then I went back three times. I thought I'd go and live there forever and then discovered I was too British. <laughs> what do you I'm mean too, by that? What was the... Was I that... just, I kept meeting these people who'd been in Australia for 25 years and they still missed Britain. And mm. they still didn't ever feel they were in a, Australian or anything. Yeah. And also, I felt that too. I felt, well, we may have a sort of common language. We're very different. And it doesn't appear to be like that, but that's what it is. We're very, very different peoples. And I just felt I I belonged here. Okay. It's extraordinary. Mm. That's after us talking before we started recording about Bruce Chatwin's observations and the song lines as well. Yes. And what were the the points where you started to feel more solid in who you were then oh god post dope psychosis <laughs> yeah <laughs> um well 
that was the beginning. I sort of staved everything off for a while, and then it would come. The, yeah. This feeling of uselessness and everything would keep coming back. I think probably what I really needed. I mean, we get you know, I was young then, and mm -hmm. then what I needed was something, an education or a skill or or something of my own, because I didn't know what to say. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I amble about. I'm a waitress sometimes. Mm -hmm. I earn my money through waitressing or mm -hmm. babysitting mm -hmm. or, you know, um, which I, I wanted. I wanted that. I wanted to be free. I thought it was a certain freedom that yeah. I had, but it didn't really work for me. I didn't gather all this till later. I was so free. I had nothing. I remember my aunt, the Potter aunt, Anne Stokes, saying to me, because I said, oh, I want to be, you know, free. And she said, look, you only get freedom if you make a commitment. Very wise words. If you commit yourself, you will find freedom. So that really went into my, because she taught me how to pot. She was, the, oh, she, was how, she was the potter, Anne Stokes, and she taught me how to pot. And so at that point I thought, aha, okay, I've got it. So I then became a potter. <laughs> and that started my road to recovery. Wow. But for so long, but I was quite late on doing this. You know, I went to college for, for I, I learnt with her in the late, when I was in my late 20s. And then I went to college in Harrogate after I'd been with Anne for a while. I was in my late 20s, early 30s. Do you think this is something that many people of the same age as yourself would recognise? Absolutely. And I call it now, I even have a name for it. It's called privileged guilt. And what it is, yes. this is my name for it, yeah. um, is that you come from this background where you're, 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 you apparently have everything. So why can't you, why can't you step on that and go further or do something with it instead of just being useless? You know, because you've had all the advantage. Yeah. But where's it? Where's it going? It's not helping you. You're not. You're not making anything of it. You're being. You're just sort of sitting there with it, and it's pointless because you're not doing anything with it. And you have been so lucky and privileged. You've had it all. You've had the education. You've had the background. You've had everything. But you know. Mm. So I notice now, it happens to all these young girls. They all get terribly depressed and I can't cope and everything. And it really is this sort of privileged guilt thing, in my opinion. That's what it was for me. And then I finally got rid, rid of all that and, and started to do something that turned, you know, was interesting, interesting for me to do, which was ceramic and pottery and my aunt, who was amazing, and all of that. And then I became more solid. My dad was the product of quite an interesting family because his sisters were artists. But they also have a very interesting story. Now, it's not really my story to tell. So I don't know if it's public knowledge. I suppose it is. I don't know. But um, dad was the straight one in his family. He had these two. He was the second oldest. Margaret Mellis was the oldest. Then dad. Then Duff who was a very interesting character, died very young mm. because he went off and lived in an ashram and his guru died and he could, didn't like the new guru. He left. 
he was vegan and everything. He went with his begging bowl. He went, started walking. He got very ill. Vegans took him in, fed him on juices, and actually just died of um, starvation, basically. He was 38 or something like that. And so was Duff... Was the 1950s? Yeah, there were a lot of middle-class people who became Indophiles, where they took take on that um, whole thing. Yeah. I mean, Duff didn't just go to an ashram. I mean, he became very interested. He studied the whole thing at Cambridge. Uh, you know, so he was well into the whole culture of, of India. And he was a Buddhist, you see. So. Yeah. Anyway, he ended up being in this ashram and died very young. He fascinated me. The story of Duff fascinated me. I've got a whole sheath of letters. I was going to do something with it, like write a book or something. And then I thought, no, no, I want to do my own thing. I don't yeah. want to talk about all these people. Yeah. Um, but he was interesting. But anyway, this was the same family. My father, Margaret first, dad second, Duff third, and then Anne was the baby. And they were born in, most of them in Edinburgh. They lived in Edinburgh. My grandfather, my father's father, was a minister of the Kirk. And his father had been a missionary in China. Oh, wow. So Margaret was sort of born on the way back from China. And so my father always was the elder of the Kirk here, was very into the church, never went into it because he went into the Navy, but mm -hmm. he was very sort of Christian, or at least, you know, he adopted that thing. Um, and my grandfather was this minister in Edinburgh in the Dean Church. That was one of his parishes. You know the Dean Church? You know the Village Dean? Of Dean. Yeah, the, yeah, the Village yeah. of Dean. Wow. That was his thing uh, for years. But they didn't like him because he'd come from this missionary business in China. Yeah. And he had different ideas. He had right. sort of slightly maverick ideas. And actually, they didn't, the, the, the congregation didn't really, couldn't get him quite because he was very educated. He also educated Cambridge. So he was. You know, it was slightly, they just didn't quite get it or like it. But anyway, that, so my father came from that sort of... Wow, very straight background, background yeah. Very straight. Yeah, but the sisters and the, and the son, the other son, went off on their own trips. Yeah. So um, dad remained true to his parents, really. And so they had a very lively childhood, lots of family arguments and lots of ideas and you know, everything. But Dad remained very straight throughout and all these mad sisters and brothers all going off into different realms. <laughs> and he was just dying to get into the Navy. So when he was a little boy, he they send you off to Dartmouth, right. which is this sort of boarding school for young Navy cadets. And so he really went into the Navy from the age of 12 until he died <laughs> when mean. he was 92, you know. So that's it. That's my father. He, and my mum... What rank did he reach? He was a captain, but he was an acting commodore in Malta the second time he went. So that meant he was second in command in Malta. And then you revert back to your original... So he was a senior captain, which is... Um, he, he, his next rung would have been admiral, but they, he didn't want to... My mother didn't want him to do that. And anyway, he didn't, he didn't make it to admiral. And mum was very relieved. <laughs> she got had enough of being a Navy wife. Yeah, totally. I can imagine that. They were both brought up in North Berwick, although Dad spent some time in Conton. 
and I actually went when my parents were little they they'd met because their parents had met in North Berwick but anyway you know and then life yeah takes over and my mum's father was he was an army man and I don't know I don't know so much about my mum's background except um what was the maiden name Wingit Grey so it wasn't Lord Wingit or anything like that but I don't know they were just they were army people oh yes I do remember she had one very interesting time in her or she had various episodes in her life but when she was 18 he was posted to Quetta and they were involved with the Quetta earthquake there was a massive earthquake in Quetta in the 30s and uh, my mum was there when she was 18 in this earthquake and she um, sort of did good works, you know, yeah. helping people that had yeah. never. But my mum was very like that anyway. She was a very, she did, she was a really nice woman. She was, my father was very sort of strict and authoritarian and bombastic. And my mother was a sweet, rather gentle, nice woman. And they both had a sense of humour, thank goodness. But she was she was really a nice person. He wasn't terrifying in the family, really. Mm-hmm. But he was still this sort of... He was strict, you know. And his career took him to Malta, to Greece? Twice to Malta and once to Greece. And probably the Greek time was everybody's favourite time. Was Why was that? Being in Greece. I don't know. I think he liked his job. He was naval attaché to Greece and Israel. Oh, wow. And he he liked that job, I think. And we all liked Greek people. They were just so nice. And we loved, We had a nice house and nice weather. And I went to school there. And I just, I just, I really liked it too. We all liked it. I just remember happy times in Greece. And was that mainland Greece? Yeah, mainland. Uh, sort of Athens, really. Oh, we wow. lived just outside Athens. Malta. So- we went there first when I was five. And then we went again when I was a young teenager, 12, 13. Was it Valletta that you were based um, in both times? Or no, uh, neither, actually. Oh. Um, the first time we were in Marzascala. Oh, I don't know Marzascala. No, it's it's actually further out. Oh. Um, I think it was a, quite junior, mm-hmm. my father, at that point. The second time we went, he was quite senior. But the first time we went, he was just, an, you know, I don't know, maybe even only a commander or something, mm. I don't know. <laughs> I was only five. The legacy of the British in Malta is very, it's you can feel it everywhere. And Yes, we have had a long, long legacy. And we were the last, the second time we were there, we were the last to leave, Fantastic. as it were. We were the last batch of Brits to leave the island. Yeah, um, no, it can yeah, work. No, it, was, it was fun, actually. I mean, I enjoyed, I enjoyed Malta, but I was I a Malta. little girl and yeah. sunshine and fun. You know, and nice food fun. and good nice swimming. swimming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What more, what more could you want? Yeah. You mentioned about your dad's other siblings and art and how your aunt Anne taught you. Both of them, my aunts, right. yes. And, uh, but it was more the pottery aunt yeah. that I know because I lived with her and she helped me and a whole load of stuff with her. Where was that? Hampstead. Wow. Uh, well, she had married Adrian by this time, and so she had. They had lots of money, and they lived in. They bought a house in Church Road, which was a beautiful row in Hampstead, 
back in sort of 60s, actually even earlier, 40 after the war. Right. I'm a bit confused. Can you see who Adrian was as well? Adrian Stokes was um, sort of philosopher. Philosophy of art was his thing, basically. Very erudite, far too difficult for me to ever understand a thing. And actually, he married um, Anne, and Anne didn't really understand it either, but she adored Adrian because he was this... He was 20 years older than her. Oh, wow. he, she thought he was some sort of god. He was he was rather magnificent in that he had... A, he was very charismatic. And he was really part of that intelligentsia of London in the uh, 50s, 60s, or Kenneth Tynan and mm. all that lot. And some people thought that Adrian was a genius. And I don't know if he was. I don't know what genius is. But anyway, he'd married my older aunt first, Margaret Mellis. And then she got too difficult. She wanted to be an artist. She didn't want to, you know, she just got too... He just wanted somebody to cook and sew and look after him and adore him and so on. So, and Anne, little Anne turned up and she she, she would do that. <laughs> so uh, he decided he'd prefer her because she was less difficult than Margaret, who was a, her own person. And... Anne was young and delightful and adored him. So then it was a complicated story about how he did it. Because in those days, you weren't allowed to marry your sister's husband. It was illegal. Mm. And also, how was he going to get rid of one wife anyway? Poor Margaret had a horrible time, but she agreed to it. Uh, she had to be seen to be having an affair with a detective watching oh, yeah, and so yeah. on. And so she agreed to it. Oh, and I mean, it was a very strange situation because she must have loved Adrian in lots of ways. And perhaps she, she, perhaps she did think, oh, well, like Anne said, oh, we must keep him in the family, you know. So maybe she, it was all, a, you know, it was all uh, agreed. And uh, actually there were tension all their lives about it. But it course. was all kept <laughs> under, the, under wraps, you know. It was like, oh, it was all apparently all right and my dad of course thought it was so immoral and terrible and he was going to shoot Adrian and my mother and and my grandparents who were the you know god people they thought it was fine <laughs> they thought it was going to be all right they didn't worry about it but my father thought it was terrible and my mother had to stop him getting his gun out anyway <sighs> so that's always been this amazing story, I think, about these two sisters and my father. And and then there was Duff, who went off and became this um, mystic and died young. So so when I when you asked me in the beginning, I said, I think I'm the product of my background. So there must be something of the Mellis in me, but they are really quite something. Yeah. I mean, I think they're quite something. Can you describe your the work of your aunts to me then? What what is it like? Mm. I've, we've got books here sitting yeah. here, but what yeah. is how, what what was their craft like? I mean, the, right. Well, Margaret was thought to be quite a talent when she was at Edinburgh. Margaret Mellis. Margaret Mellis, and she was only eighteen, and she did some wonderful things. I've got her early watercolours. She hated. She didn't want anyone to know she'd ever done those because. She thought they were awful. They're really good. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They're a product of that time. And they're very good for mm. an 18-year-old. Mm. Anyway, then she went off on the sort of contemporary art idea and all their friends were these, you know, Patrick Heron and all, all that era. Hepworth, is, isn't it? Hepworth, 
Well, they didn't like Hepworth, actually. Oh, really? But they, but they were, they did host her. And right. They used to make jokes about her. I mean, you know, um, she wasn't worth a Hepworth and things like that. <laughs> I think it was just jealousy, really. Mm, possibly. So I didn't know Margaret so as well as I knew Anne mm-hmm. because I was growing up living my life. It was sort of, you know, she was over there doing her thing and I was just a young girl. But I just knew of her always as, as this rather interesting artist. And and I remember I remember meeting her. And I, I remember her and Frances. She married Frances Davison, who was a friend, mm-hmm. introduced to her by um, Patrick Heron, who I also met. And I really liked Francis. He was rather strange. He was a bit like Athel, actually. Mm. He was rather... Um, I think of him as a bit like Athel, you know, sort of loner and kind of interesting and difficult and a bit cynical and a bit, you know, all Healthy. that. What? Healthy. Healthy. Yeah. <laughs> Not. Um, but anyway, Margaret and, and Francis got married and that was good, actually, for, for them. Margaret started life by being a watercolourist and then she just developed and did she went through many phases in her life and the latest one was this driftwood thing Mm. um but she went through many phases in her life she did pop art she did she just did all sorts of different things but she was always considered to be a good artist and i always thought she was really interesting she was quite difficult she was difficult she was a typical like a storybook artist that you're always told of, mm. that they're terribly selfish. And so everything, and I mean that in the real sense of that word. Of the self rather than the... Of the, the self. So yeah. everything had to go through her. So right. it wasn't. So she wasn't interested in a conversation that didn't somehow relate to art or her involvement in art. Goodness me. So she, she didn't, she, she wouldn't talk a lot because she wasn't, she didn't have anything to say. But if it got onto her her or art in in a form that she was interested to her she would she would talk about wow. it and because she her whole life was focused on it i mean that's all she was yeah. interested in and she had telfer and she had bad times where there wasn't any money and she was on her own and telfer and being your cousin telfer being my cousin and then then the whole episode in st ives and adrian going off with Anne then that all died down she met Francis and then she had a nice life with Francis but they didn't have a lot of money at all and they 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 struggled about but they they had a nice life together and he he learnt then to be an artist she encouraged him because he wasn't an artist before that he was um I think he was a literary man I think his education was in literature so he did collages encouraged Mm. by Margaret so Margaret's work, I've always really loved it and respected her as an artist, you know. But you couldn't get away with being that kind of artist these days because you're expected to be everything, you know. Yeah. She was kind of protected by, I don't know, her life. or I, I don't know. She was just able to be what she was, a true artist in every every sort of molecule of hers was about art.
what about Anne then? What was Anne? That? Anne's the opposite to Margaret. Anne was all joy and sparkly and sweet and loving and giving. And Margaret's all... Yeah. The art. The art <laughs> and seriousness and, <laughs> you know, not really playful or anything, just really serious. I mean, she did have a sense of humour and she was uh, smiley, but, but really Anne was this darling little plaything. You know, mm. everything's wonderful and lovely. And, of course, Adrian thought, wow, that's nice. <laughs> and Anne, I think... I think he got Anne interested in the ballet. So she oh, yeah. learnt how to be... Because Adrian was very keen on the ballet, and the ballet russe particularly. And so she learnt... He encouraged her to learn ballet dancing. So she spent her early life being a ballet dancer. Um, she wasn't really a ballet dancer. She didn't go out and... But she did all the training. She did okay. a lot of training. And then, anyway, then he married her, so... And she could just look after him. <laughs> then they had two children, Philip, the eldest, and then Ariadne, the girl. And Ariadne was born with something seriously wrong. Nobody knew what it was or they never have discovered. She was mm-hmm. just, I don't know, they called it paranoid schizophrenia because it's a label. They didn't know what else to call it. There wasn't a cure. Mm-hmm. They decided not to make her go through lots of lobotomies and yeah. all that. But she did have to go through quite a lot of psychoanalysis. So that, then you did ask me what Adrian did. He was an art philosopher, but he was really into psychoanalysis. And mm-hmm. I suppose it was partly to do with Ariadne. And so he had long discourses with um, Melanie Klein and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he made his children have analysis, which Telfer had analysis and Philip had analysis. And... Ariadne was supposed to have it, but of course she couldn't really respond. What's happened with Ariadne now? She... Ariadne's just, well, I say recently, but I mean, it's about two or three years now she died. But she was a few months older than me, yeah. or a year older than me, and was like a child of sort of six or seven or eight, something like that. And she was in a home ultimately because Anne couldn't cope with her through adolescence she started to get violent it's oh, all very wow. difficult but Anne had this quite difficult life with this sort of so-called genius yeah. who she adored and then Ariadne who was at home kept at home and she had to deal with that and she had a difficult life I think trying to balance all of these things and that's why she started doing pottery right and she did it at home so she could look after her husband and her daughter and she's never really, she never used to admit that. This is why I'm slightly anxious that I'm saying things, because she never really admitted it. And that whole book here of her, yeah, it never mentions anything about Ariadne or why she started potting or anything like that. Anyway, what Ariadne is, is now Sorry. no longer, you know, she died about Sorry. two or three years ago. That takes us then into to the, art, the craft of potting. Well... I think I was going through another one of my crazinesses. I didn't know what to do myself, and I turned up at Church Row, which is mm-hmm. where Anne uh, lived. And the first time I turned up at Church Row, I had come back from one of my journeys, <laughs> one of my travels, 
And I was staying with a different aunt and I wasn't enjoying myself. And so Anne said, come and stay here and you can help me pot. And and also Bill Coldstream, who is, was the head of the Slade, he was looking for a model to do the second of a double nude he was doing. Oh. So anyway, I ended up being this double nude person and going every three days a week, I think we went off to Islington and I took my clothes off and stood there. And was it well paid? And no, there was a fee. It was mm. a standard fee. I mean, I can't remember what it was, but it was so much an hour for a nude model. Right. I was actually terrified. I'd never done that before in my life. And it, I think it shows in the painting. I'm standing like this, like I'm going wow. to be shot. It's a massive painting. Wow. And um, it's in Yale now. Anyway, so that took up my time and I worked for Anne. I, pu I pugged her clay and she taught me how to pot, to throw and everything. And I lived in that house with them for quite a long time, a year and a half or something. And then I went off again. And then I went through all my trauma. And this third time I'd been to Australia, connected with a bloke, you know, mm -hmm. there's always a bloke somewhere that was causing me trouble. <laughs> I used to choose the worst kind mm -hmm. of man on earth, you know. Anyway, I'd fled back from one of these episodes episodes <laughs> and i arrived back at church row in the taxi and i felt wonderful because i'd just left it all behind the nightmare i'd just been through and i just felt wonderful and i got into church row and there was bill sitting at the kitchen table again wanting a model again so i walked in <laughs> from this other trip there he was he said would you do it and by this time he was using her top room in this house so I just said, OK, because I didn't have any money and he paid me the fee. Fantastic. And so he did this other, this, this second painting. I, I, I really got to know Bill. He was really nice. He was a really interesting man because he'd been the head of the Slade for years and years. So I did that. And again, I pugged my aunt's clay and I worked with her for a bit. And I lived there again. It was all very nice, but I was a bit balmy. And <laughs> I was going through another one of my episodes uh -huh, uh -huh. and Bill was terribly good about it because he knew, because he was quite used to depression and people being, feeling well, like that. Head of Slady would see, yeah, yeah. so, so much. And also he had suffered uh -huh. and, you know, everyone suffered. He never asked me a single question and I could lie down. It was on, a, I was lying on a bed. So I used to just go to sleep. Fantastic. I used to, the, the, where he had the, his room where he painted, my little bedroom was next door, so I'd go to sleep, wake up in the morning, put my dressing gown on, go downstairs for my cup of coffee, mm -hmm. come back upstairs, go into that room, take the dressing gown off, lie there and fall asleep again for another three hours. <laughs> this sounds um, like the dream. Why, why did like you ever do anything dream. else? Yeah. Just, you know, I, but I was so mad I couldn't do anything else. I think Ian, who was married to Anne at the stage, who'd had analysis, he thought I should go to the Tavistock Clinic. So I went to the Tavistock Clinic to, to be, you know, psyched. And they came out with the idea that I really was mad and I ought to go into a... Not mad, they don't use mm. those words. I needed to go into a unit in the hospital. And I thought, oh, come on, this, is, this has gone too far. I'm not doing that. So I fled back to Mull. Mull mm -hmm. was my go-to place in between all the nightmares and uh, everything. Very interesting. And I would come back and stay with my parents... And they were very good about it too because yeah. they didn't ask me. They didn't really understand all that stuff. Yeah. And they didn't ask me questions or bug me or anything. They just let me be. 
And I used to sleep a lot and eat and wander about and feel, you know, you know hmm. sort of tragedy in life. Life, oh, what's life all about? Late 20s, you say? Who am I? <laughs> yeah. God, what a load of... When I think of it now, I just think, oh. But at the time, the it's so powerful. Yeah. Anyway, I stopped having episodes after a bit. <laughs> I haven't had one for some time. I'm hoping not to have another one. I've decided it's all hormones and nonsense. Yeah. you told me a story about when you were uh, stepping out with a sound technician oh yes what was that now because i don't think he was so elevated as that i yeah. think he was a roadie <laughs> he was just a roadie for yes that's right yeah mm. one of my absolute favorite bands mm. i just love them so you were in on the recordings for some wow, yes things i did yeah i saw the the, the but <laughs> it didn't mean anything to me and we were all stoned all the time anyway so um he was he was just a roadie, and I just remember who's the, there's one really attractive member of um, yes, called oh, Steve Howe. Steve Howe, the guitarist. I used to really fancy him. Really, mm. wow, big time. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I was with the roadies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but before that, I'd had um, quite a long relationship with somebody who was a record producer, right. and I and I lived. I worked with a, in a very tiny little record company in Haymarket in London. And, what was uh, the label? The Dart. No, you won't have heard of it. It was just completely Dart, D-A-R-T, Dart. It was a so stupid name. What did Dart. they put out? Tried to put out pop songs. They were trying to get to number one. Yeah. <sighs> what? They didn't put anything out that was... Uh, that got anywhere. Well, who was the the producer? What did the producer? Well, produce? the producer, the boyfriend, who was called Roger Watson, okay. and he worked in the end. He worked for Chrysalis and went off to America. But All right. This was anyway. So I had a sort of slight sort of thing about obviously this, you know, being a rock chick around the edges of it. As and I was just the girlfriend, you know. They're just dozens, they all have dozens of girlfriends all lying around waiting for their men to kind of come to bed because they're all up all night doing whatever it is they're doing and i remember one episode which was quite good was um who's brands richard branson okay he bought a place called the manor house tubular bells was, recorded was it there. Yep. lots of stuff was and i did spend a weekend there they were recording the scaffold <laughs> oh wow lily the pink <laughs> willie the pink that's exactly it and that album was recorded there, and I was there because Roger was a friend of Roger Goff, and wow. um, he was all right. He was good. Roger McGoff and McGough. Adrian Henry, and yes, that's right. And Zoot Money, they all turned up for the session, and I was again with just the girlfriend, you know. But that was kind of quite interesting. I quite enjoyed that. That was quite good. Well, let's take a drink to love. But anyway, <laughs> but then I t- took up with the roadie. For a yes, which was a completely different thing. And the roadie had no in on anything like that. We were just there, you know what I mean? So where did you meet Athel? 
With whom you've been for 30, 40 years? Yeah, nearly. Well, I'm so old now <laughs> that I have actually been married to him for <sighs> nearly 30 years. Brilliant. Unbelievable. I never thought I could stay with any one person for that long. Really? Yeah. I was very old when I met him. I was 40, wow. 41. We got married when I was 41. Yeah, I hadn't been married before. Right. I just had all these degenerate boyfriends. <laughs> they were either sort of druggy or alcoholy or married or ah. ill or mad. You know, they just weren't the marrying kind. <laughs> and obviously I wasn't either. So um, how did you meet Athel then? So I met Athel on Mull. Aha. Yeah. I had been living in Yorkshire for years and... I decided now that I was a potter, I could come back to Mull uh, with my own thing. Yeah, because before, fine. way in the past, I'd, I'd just floated around here waitressing and cleaning clams and, mm. you know, doing lots of gardening jobs, just doing odd jobs. And so now I came back as a potter. That made sense. And my parents were getting quite old. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I'll come back to Mull. So I sold up in Yorkshire because I'd got a little, I bought a house. My first house was in. Yorkshire and I made a huge killing on it my brother was livid (laughs) because he'd had to work all that time to make that much money and and I had just bought for Uh, nothing and sold yeah Yeah. (laughs) livid anyway so I moved to Glengorm and set up the pottery and that was in 1991 and I was there for a year potting in the steading mm. at Dingle and became very friendly with Janet Nelson. She's my friend. And she had just been left by Raymond. We got to know each other. I've always admired her and liked her and everything, but I got to know she's her a lot enigmatic. better. Yeah, she is. She's a lovely, lovely person. Yeah. So <laughs> I moved into steading uh, everything. I've been there a year and I had been off men because I'd had a bad episode. So I hadn't been near a single fella for a whole year and I was beginning to think oh my god you know I was quite old I was 40 and my parents my mother was frantic I mean she thought I was gay she thought I was everything you know she she couldn't understand it nobody could really anyway one day I saw this bloke walk past <laughs> it turned out to be Athel but I didn't know him. but anyway he was going to the larder because he came to uh, Glengorm to stalk because he used to do quite a bit of that and he'd always come with his previous wife or mm. girlfriend. Well, this time he turned up without anybody. He was nice to my dog because I could see him out the window. And I was watching him and he was being really nice to my dog, Fluke, at the time. I thought, oh, that's nice. You know, it's always goes down well when a bloke's good to your dog. Anyway, we got to meet and we we had a dinner out and we had a lunch I gave him lunch and we talked a bit and I thought oh it's interesting and after two weeks I was getting kind of more interested and it came time for him to go and so he came up to the steading flat where I was and he looked really hangdog you know like eel sort of really sad and I said what's the matter with you he said oh I think I've fallen in love with you. <laughs> because Brilliant. it was too, it was so difficult because he was living in Newcastle. Right. He was um, lecturing in Newcastle and I was in Mull. And how is it going to work? It's going to be a disaster, you know, and all that. 
So I was sort of smiled to myself and I thought, ooh, that's good. <laughs> I hadn't really kind of clicked it all at all, but I just, it sort of made me, it made me smile. I thought, oh, that's nice. That's lovely. Um, anyway, I said, oh, don't be so silly. You'll, 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 <laughs> you'll, this is a holiday thing, you know, you'll go back to Newcastle and you'll start your life again and you'll forget all about me. But if you don't, write to me. Mm-hmm. In two weeks, write to me. If you still, if you still feel vaguely like this, so off he went. Two weeks came and went. I got more and more nervous. <laughs> Nothing happened. <laughs> Nothing happened. Three weeks later, last the letter came, and luckily I was. I, it was all right. He still kind of wanted to get to know me, and yeah, it was all very. And he was quite funny. I, I, I liked the fact that he'd said, "Oh, I suppose you like." black and white films with subtitles and all this sort of thing, you know. And we had these discussions on the on the phone and it, I don't know, I just really liked him. I thought he hit the spot. And um, I thought, you know, it's the first time I'd actually ever really liked anyone. You know, he had a salary yeah. and he was educated. Yeah. None of the other men I'd known ever had anything sort of remotely about them like that. Then, Then we had to sort of meet properly and I had to consummate the relationship and everything mm-hmm. and find out a bit about him mm-hmm. so I said right I'm coming down in two weeks clear the decks mm-hmm. so he had got various girlfriends so he sort of got rid of them mm-hmm. <laughs> and I turned up and, and there you are and then we got married and all that and he had been married for 28 years really and his wife um they hadn't divorced because I think for some men, it's a protection, you know, to be married meant that, you know, he could be protected a bit. And so he hadn't bothered to get a divorce. So then, of course, he had to set about the divorce. And and it was because they'd been separated for four years or something. It, it was just a matter of, um, you know, yeah. So that wasn't a problem. And then we got married the minute, the day his <laughs> divorce came through. He asked me to marry him. That's right. I said yes, and then I started arranging the wedding completely at Glengorm. So we got oh, married at Glengorm. Gosh, we got married in the garden at Glengorm, which was a beautiful day, fourth of September, beautiful day like mm-hmm. today. And, and Janet was our witness, and John Craig was our best man, and Whoa. nobody from Athelside came because they'd all been the year before because of his DSC that he'd got. So they didn't want to come to the wedding. They didn't know who I was. They thought I was some terrible floozy he'd picked up. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) they weren't interested in his wedding to me. But they were very far away, most of them. Yeah, they were South Africa. So, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was a great wedding. It was a really good wedding. It really was, actually. And everyone was so good to us. You know, they all rallied round and, oh, it's just brilliant. We had the sort of mum and dad bit of the wedding at... Western Isles and they invited all their friends and then then we had our wedding at, in the field the wedding field it's called actually mm. at Glengorm in a tent and a band and it would cool. be like your your yeah. wedding actually yeah. and it was really good who were your band who played in the band they were called Jegro I don't know if you remember them do you no I don't remember they were a sort of reggae band oh wow yeah yeah it was really cool we had two things I mean no you know I, I was getting married I was 41 mm-hmm. I mean it was a Big deal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not, no expense spared. I spent loads of Athol's money on the wedding. 
I think he got a bit of a fright actually because mm. anyway the the band we had first of all we had Robert McLeod and his mm. band mm-hmm. for the Kaylee, Scottish dancing yeah. Kaylee part of it mm. and we also had um, a bar in the tent and then they gave up we had a little break and then we had the Jegro we had the amazing yeah, that was good fun one of the things that it's always struck me as your house and the story of your house. It's quite remarkable. How did you come to have Larachvor? Larachvor, we call it. Tommy Clark named it, really. He'd been the factor for Lady Jean at Treshnish. Okay, so that came about because Glengorm was going through a tough time. And I said, don't worry, Janet, you can tell us to go, give us six months' notice. That was the agreement. So she gave us six months' notice. Uh, meanwhile, I took Athel round the whole of Mull looking for somewhere for right. us. And I was into building our own place. But Athel wasn't really, because he had not had that experience, you know. It wasn't part of his sort of thing. So we got up there to Larifor, and it was just this pile of stones. And we looked out over the moor, and Athel said, oh, it reminds me of the felt, you oh know, because he's South African. Yeah. And... At the time, I thought, oh, it's a bit bleak. And my mum and I used to go on little drives around there and look up at it and think, oh, my God, mm. it's so bleak. And Because it was this dark stone, basalt stone, yeah. all lying. And it just looked so bleak and miserable and a wet day, you know, and like the wet, the wind and the rain, pour, you know. It's an old school stream, house, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But it just looked so scary. And I don't think my mother would ever imagine in a million years that we would ever live in it so I took Athel up there and he thought it was wonderful and I began to think oh maybe this is wonderful so anyway we wandered off and we'd spoken to Caroline Caroline owned it at this point and she rang up and I remember Athel was in the kitchen at the steading she said I've worked your life out you buy the old school you do this you do that blah 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 what do you think and so I shouted across at Athel Oh, Caroline says we can buy the schoolhouse. And Athel said, oh, all right then. (laughs) So I said, oh, my goodness. We'll get back to you, Caroline. Then we set about thinking about it and thinking how could we afford it and what we were going to do and how it was going to happen. And we got what the architect, and he wanted us to do it with lime and, you know, Mm. make it all as it used to be sort of thing, except we built it taller. Mm -hmm. Mm Then we borrowed money and begged it and mortgaged and stuff. And we did it five years before Athel retired from Newcastle. So there's a salary. So that we could pay for it. Yeah. And and I'm so glad we did. You know, it was a really good move that. So by the time he'd retired, then we'd built it. But I did spend the first few years on my own there and he was in Newcastle. Right. Then he retired from that in 2004, but we moved in in 2000. And the house itself has got graffiti in it from the past. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, it was a real coup, that, because I seemed to, I had remembered about the galleons, mm-hmm. but I was a bit shocked to see that somebody had gouged out most of the main galleon. There was one big, big, big um, graffitied boat galleon, and it had been gouged up either by surveyors looking at it or something. Mm. But there were a whole load of other ones. And also everybody who's ever been there has yeah. written their name. So it's like a document to the whole of S- Scottish youth or Mull's youth, yeah. really. 
and it's got the earliest dates or something like, um, what are they, 1896 or something. Even earlier. Is that the one in the bathroom downstairs? Yes, there's one in the bathroom, there's yeah. one in the wall in my pottery. Mm. And John Renshaw said, well, if you want to keep that wall, which I did, mm. you can make that your pottery. So that's how I managed to get the whole bottom floor as my pottery. <laughs> and then Athol has the top floor and then we meet in the middle every now and again. Amazing. Mm. It suits us very well. We built it for us. But you could convert it to, you know, you could change it a lot. And now you've got your gallery as well. And I've got my gallery. Tin Shed Gallery, that's mm, it. Tin Shed Gallery, yes. Well, that came about because I hurt my back at some point and I thought, well, if I want to pot, I'm not carting my work anywhere again, ever. I can't. I can't cart boxes of pots anywhere. So the only thing to do is to build my own space. <laughs> and that was one thing. And the other thing is that my husband, Athol, is a bit older than me. So the likelihood is that he will die before I do. And I need to be really busy yeah. and also have communication because it is quite isolated. It's very yeah. isolated, yeah. We, we can't see another human being from there, which is wonderful. Likewise here, yeah. Yeah, it's... yeah, exactly. Gosh, there's very few places like that. Yeah. We love that aspect. But I thought, well, on my own, I don't want to move. No. You know, I don't want to go to Saarland like I had thought I would. Mm. I want to stay there when, when that time comes. So so I built this um, gallery. <laughs> you know, there you go. Anything else you would say to round off? Any <clears throat> any thoughts? Or is there anything you thought, oh, that's, I want to see that? Um, have, I, have I really made it clear how much I love Mao? How much do you love Mao? <laughs> tell, tell me, pay the mall tax. Oh, I love it. Why? I Why do you love Mull? What, what is well, it about this place? I love it just because everybody does the same reasons. It's so very beautiful. But it's more than that. There are other places. It's more than that. But what more is it? You see, I don't know. What am I comparing it to? I, uh, the other places I've been, I've been abroad. I've mm -hmm. lived in Australia and all sorts of places out there. Nothing compares with Mull. Nothing does. Except Corfu, the island of Corfu is rather like Mull, only a Greek island, like the Greek version of Mull. But really nowhere does compare in its beauty. But what else is it? I mean, it's got to be the people, hasn't it? And yet we all crave this sort of isolation. But I think they're there if you want them, and they're not there if you don't. I think that's probably the answer. Whereas if you're living in a city, you bombarded all the time you can't get away from them here you can if you want and i realized the value of having a little drive i never realized that before because actually you really can <laughs> you really can go up your drive and you know shut the door Thank you so much, Charlotte. It was such a pleasure to talk with you and hear your stories. I'm sure that so much of what you said will resonate with so many people. And it was really amazing to be able to hear about your aunts in such a personal manner. That was really something. So thank you. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely delighted to be back working on what we do in the winter. It's a project that I love with all my heart. Work has taken me to other shores whilst being desk-bound here on Mull. I've been working on Tales for the East of late, a podcast series from Glasgow's Deniston, Sighthill and Hag Hill, which is very similar to what we do in the winter. 
because I'm a one-trick pony. But if you're interested in other people's stories of the lives they've left, do check it out. You can find it on most podcast platforms. The residency that allowed Tales for the East to happen has come to an end, so there are 13 episodes out there waiting to be listened to, if it appeals to you. I may, at some point fairly soon, try to do a crossover episode between the two projects, as there's someone here on Mull who grew up in Deniston and lived an extraordinary series of experiences that relate to a very particular time and another outbreak of disease many years ago, whose tales would be fascinating to hear indeed. I'm super chuffed to be back with you on what we do in the winter, though. Now, if you wanted to support the podcast, please feel free to click the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com. But obviously don't worry if you can't or you don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened and, and went gallivanting with us rather than not. On that note, thank you so much to our monthly supporters. It always brings a smile to my face when I see the donations coming in. Thank you so, so much. Needless to say, if you're a monthly supporter and you find yourself in a different circumstance to previous and not able to support the podcast anymore, don't worry about this at all. I totally understand and I appreciate all you put into it. Thank you. As ever, if you could leave a star review on whichever platform you listen to, I'd be really, really grateful. It helps to spread the word about the project and makes these stories available to more and more listeners all over the world. As ever, thank you to all of you who reach out to say hello. It always makes my day to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I hope that life is being kind to you and I look forward to catching up with you again in the very near future. Take care, wherever you are. Mo and tang. Shinakate.